So um, anybody can jump in at any point if you've got any questions or, but Randy, if you were just to tell us, you know, as you've been on this journey, beginning back in Santa Clarita, um, without getting into specifics of who said what or anything or using names, if you were to just give us broadly, what is the primary thing that you've confronted or that has confronted you in terms of opposition? What, what do people in that church scene, what are some of the questions that they would put to you or the challenges that they would put to you uh, that would attempt to dissuade you from, from where you're on, from the journey you're on now? Well, that's a, well, there's, there's, I, I could probably talk for 15, 20 minutes here, but I, I'm just going to bring it into one area specifically, and it is um, there are minimal things that is perceived that you must apprehend by understanding and lay hold of and just kind of, when I say lay hold of, believe them as facts. And if you believe them as facts and understand them to be in the Word of God, and you can reference them in the Word of God, and you take them on as a personal identity, like, I, I, I'm going to own that as mine, um, then that's all I need to do. I'm, I'm saved. I have righteousness of Christ imputed to me. And yet, um, in, the, in those circles, um, I know there's a lot of ongoing um, people enslaved to certain sins. And... Um, and so as I've, I've been, made this, been on this journey to come out of, of, of that myself, um, uh, some of the opposition is, has been around, you, you don't need to be so extreme. Okay. Yeah. You don't need to take those measures. Um, and um, if, you, if you start trying to build some structure around your life to pursue the Lord, um, those things are actually starting to look legalistic. And, and you don't have to do things to be saved. You know, and I, I would agree. There's um, not by anything that I do in in, in Adam right. <laughs> is going to save me. Right. Um, I repudiate all that I've been in Adam, and I hope to um, to allow Christ to form in me the righteousness that I am receiving by faith. Amen. I trust Him by faith, and so back to answer your question specifically, I would say that um, people don't want to give up very much. They want to just lay hold of some factual things about the Christ and the scriptures and, and say, okay, I've got it. That's all I need. I can go about my life and fundamentally leave off all the things that, that God blesses you, a, a saved person individually in, in the corporate body, Amen. in the body of Christ. And so a minimalist attitude, I guess I would okay. say, in that um, anything that, that goes against the minimalist attitude is considered legalistic amen so that's that's not unfamiliar we're not unfamiliar to that and there's there's even an accusation in it that if that if you're becoming legalistic you know when paul rebuked people for becoming legalistic he said that they had fallen from grace and so when christians accuse other christians of being being legalistic that's the construct uh in which they're they're making that accusation and i think um we would just have to look at the scriptures and ask, you know, is that is that what's taught? That, you know, don't worry, don't stress it, be relaxed, accept the minimal requirements and, and don't worry about the rest. I mean, is that what Jesus is meaning in Mark when he says, if your eye causes you to sin, pluck it out. If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. 
And, and, and in speaking about these causes for sin, he ties these causes for sin to eternal life. He says, for it is better to enter heaven maimed than hell whole, as if a refusal to cut off sin is automatically an assumption of hell on, in, in Christ's teaching there. And, you know, I'm sure that they would have some way of getting around it. I remember uh, somebody asking Jesus in the Gospels, they said, will few be saved? And he said, strive to enter, for many will seek to enter, but will not be able to. And, and there, is this, there is this dogma, largely unexamined dogma, in Christian circles that basically says, um, if, I'm, if there's anything in me that is striving, striving to enter, then I'm a legalist. And if there's anything in me that takes sin seriously, then I have betrayed the cross and diminished the imputed righteousness of Christ. And this is just, this, is, this flies in the face of Scripture. Can I say one more thing? Um, and in light of that, um, there's been an affection and love to God that I know is real in here, that things are changing in me, and yet it's perceived that, that I actually don't love God and that I'm actually... Um, going against the gospel in, 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 that, in that mentality that I just talked about. I mean, just, just think about what Jesus is saying there in John 14, you know, and 15, where he says, uh, If anyone loves me, he will keep my word, and my Father will love him, and we will come to him. He goes on, he says, He who does not love me does not keep my words, and the words which you hear are not mine, but the Father's. He also says... Um, uh, it goes on in, in uh, let's see, where is it? Uh, let's see. Yes, verse 21. He who has my commandments and keeps them is the one who loves me. So they're saying you're, you're, you're falling away from love and you're falling into legalism. But Jesus is saying that if you keep his commandments, that, that is, that's proof of love. As if to say that keeping his commandments is impossible apart from an equipping relationship of love. It's the same thing John is saying in 1 John 2, 3, where he says, this is how we know we have come to know him, which is a relationship statement, if we keep his commandments. You just, you just wish that more Christians would take an honest look at what the Bible describes as proof of love and proof of grace and recognize that true obedience True keeping of the commandments is the greatest proof of God's love, of a, of a loving relationship. I've, I, I like the phrase, legalism tells you the least you have to do. Love inspires you to the most you can do. And, and so the real legalism is this minimal requirement Christianity that feels judged by someone who is going further. And, and, and what is that feeling of, of being judged by Randy if, if Randy wants to go further in God? Is that not John 3.19 where he says, This is the judgment that light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. And, and, and so all that has to happen in, in order for Cain to feel judged is for Abel to have more of, an, of a connection and relationship with God. You're judging me. No. I'm actually just trying to focus on my relationship with God. You're a legalist. No, he who loves God keeps his commandments. I would just submit that um, if you have a 
reformed theology that has largely kept you from understanding the Spirit of God, understanding an infilling of the Holy Spirit, uh, which would then provide the grace that would empower you to obedience wrought in God, then you only have two categories. You have a category of um, I either try in my flesh and I continue to fail, and so now I'm a failure, but I don't really want anyone to know that I'm a failure, so I start to hide these things and polish the outside of the cup. Now I'm a hypocrite, and I don't want to be that either, so this is really this hard place to be. So then I have two options. I either keep doing that, which eventually is going to wear me out, or I go to the other side and say, well, I just get to rest in Christ. He did it all. He accomplished everything on the cross. It is finished, and therefore it, this is going to require nothing of me. And if I try to do those works that I've been trying to do for the past 10 years, and I know that I can't uh, because I've tried it and it doesn't work, um, then I'm trying to earn my own salvation. So uh, these are the only two buckets I have. I either try in my own strength and I fail, or I just rest because Christ did everything. So when you have a people that say, no, there is, there is a way to walk in righteousness, a way to walk in obedience, a way to, to, to actually have true joy, and, and his commands would not be burdensome, and these different things. It seems like you're a liar. You know, it, it, it just seems like, no, this, what are you saying? I've been, I've been doing this for 20 years, and I haven't experienced what you're talking about. So, how, you know, I don't know if I'm throwing out a question or, or what this is, but what do you do with that? If you're stuck in, with those, in, those are the only two categories you have, and you have a people that are telling you, no, there's an infilling of the Holy Spirit that can actually empower you to live this life that would be consistent with the scriptures, the word become flesh. Amen. You know, how so do you... What you're really saying, and, and tell me if this, if I'm, if I'm summarizing or condensing it too much, but what you're really saying is that take the transformative power of the Holy Spirit out of the, the equation and eternal security is all you can be left with. Because if God is not an active force in our lives, meaning grace is not an enabling power, it can only be a permissive power. That's, what you're, that's basically what you're saying, is that this is the logical conclusion of any theology that omits the, the presence and power of the Holy Spirit. So it's really eternal security is an outworking of cessationism. If the, the well, gifts have ceased... It's important to look at things like that. It shows the power of ideas or thoughts and as they mature what they grow into and when you see something like that that is a necessity of a prior thought, yeah. it is the outflow of the conclusion you drew at a prior point in time. When you see something like that it really can wake you up because I, I don't think anyone could argue with a straight face at least um, that the love of God is not something that's supposed to compel us in a way that exceeds the law and its and its demands, and I, I don't remember exactly how a flea circus works, um, but it was told me from Brother Howard, um, and it's something along the lines of you put a canopy over fleas at a certain height, and they get so used to hitting that point that they won't jump to actually bang their head against the top of this canopy, and then you can set little things that they're going to jump through because they only jump a certain height and. Voila, you've got a flea circus. And you have a feeling that the devil does something very similar with this whole idea of just mental ascent and then not doing anything at all 
that would, you know, hit that canopy or question this standard. You know, you have all of a sudden shrunken what love could do. You know, I, I think everyone would agree that a life wasted for someone whose heart is full with love as he never found an altar to make a sacrifice to demonstrate that love. That would be a life wasted for someone who is being, you know, constantly filled with this sense of love. Is I never found a context to get to express that. That's what love is. In fact, you could say the love of God is, a, is, is rocket fuel. And you could say an encounter with God is a very short fuse to that rocket. And so all of a sudden when that lights, you don't see a flea jumping to its boundary anymore. You see something that starts going like this, you know. And when you see that, you immediately have to answer, what is it that's producing this in this man? Now, the carnal man, if it's made a covenant with death, meaning that it's all made an agreement with all of its peers, we don't go any further than this, okay, because it costs a lot. Well, when there's not love in the heart, that's all that does matter. Minimal requirement Christianity, that's the only thing that someone's thinking about. That's a covenant that we're all making with one another subconsciously. We're never going to voice it like that, but we've all agreed we don't go any further than this. But all of a sudden, someone wakes up and they... I mean, they, they blow the roof off of that, and they are running after God with all their heart. And someone sits there and goes, what do we do with the subconscious covenant that we've made? We have to admit to it based upon this person's behavior. We have to admit that we have all restricted our response to God to be bare minimum. And yet this one possesses something that says something entirely different. Well, there's two options that you really have in that. You can either... Do a smear campaign against it to discredit it. You know, if you can prove, I know what you're doing, Kevin. Oh, you're so super godly now. Don't you know you can't earn your salvation? Here's Kevin, poor Kevin, trying to prove to God something. Oh, dear, you know. And, and so it's a smear campaign. And it's like, you know, he, he's always kind of been like this. I don't know if you guys know Kevin. We've known him for years. Kevin's always, he's always trying to outprove someone. Now he's done it with Christianity. You know, smear campaign, that's the first one. But if there's a genuineness to what that person's doing that can't be smeared in that way, you can't sit there and say, oh, you didn't hear that Jesus was born of an illegitimate marriage? Oh, I'm sorry you didn't hear that. But yeah, if you want to follow the Messiah, you know, just so you know, we don't even know who his father is, you know? You know, um, by the way, uh, did you guys know he's a terrorist? Yeah, he said he was going to tear down this temple. And, and I mean, I don't know if you guys know this, but he's talking about the temple here of Solomon. He says he's going to tear it down. That's what he wants to do with God and with religion. I mean, he, he is a, he, he, he's, he's done some powerful things, but he's got some really wrong things. I mean, if they can't succeed at that, then the next thing they do is they plot, how do we murder it? How do we snuff this light out altogether? And I'll tell you what slander actually is, if you look it up. The reason why it's such a serious thing is because slander is actually the murder of someone's character. What you are engaged in is you are saying, fine, fine, fine. I'm not willing to go to life in prison for snuffing out Kevin. But I don't have to go to life in prison if I use this as my sword. I can slay this man. I can murder this man using my tongue. And in doing so, I can snuff out this light. And now Cain has succeeded without having to use a rock in striking Abel. He's used his tongue and done the same thing. Amen. So... Amen. Got a note from <coughs> Brother Safrir. Yes. Yeah. So every good tree bears good fruit, but 
the bad tree bears bad fruit. A good tree cannot produce bad fruit, nor can a bad tree produce good fruit. Every tree that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So then you will know them by their fruits. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven will enter. Can I read a quote from Dietrich Bonhoeffer? Sure. Um, I like to have us remember that the, the battles we're facing are not new to us. Just a sense of, for most everybody's going to yeah. know who Dietrich Bonhoeffer is, but Amen. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was a um, part of the Confessing Church. He was a leader in the Confessing Church during the rise of uh, Nazism in Germany. And um, he really was part of a small uh, minority of Christian clergy who opposed Hitler and, and worked in an underground Christian network to subvert the slaughter of the Jews and, and oppose Hitler across the board. And after Hitler had appointed the uh, Reichsbishop who would, um, who would comply with his demands, the Reichsbishop began to bring pressure against the confessing church and threatened Dietrich Bonhoeffer and the Gestapo started raiding his his uh, house and their schools and finally they shut him down and in the end they imprisoned him. Uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer wrote letters as a persecuted Christian from uh, 20th century uh, Nazi Germany and in the end they they uh, they hung him, he was hanged to death uh, by by the Nazis after a show trial that accused him of uh, insurrection against the government. So that's Dietrich Bonhoeffer. You know, what makes me think about him the most in this context is a book that he wrote called Cost of Discipleship. And it's a book that if you haven't read, you should certainly just order and read. But it shows the conflict that he was, uh, that he was immersed in or engaged in with the Lutheran Church during the time of the rise of Hitler. And I can't stress the importance of us understanding history in this way because when we fail to be students of these types of moves, we then are caught flat-footed and surprised by the repeat of that pattern. You know, there's something called a, a Fibonacci sequence that is fascinating to think about how these things actually work themselves out. But um, I don't want to go into that and get lost in the weeds, and plus I don't know the topic well enough to, to talk about it intelligently. So, um, but... Amen. There is something that is very unique about that setting, you know, that Luther, Lutheranism had grown into a place of mental ascent that they called belief. Did Bonhoeffer ever call it easy believism? Probably not. That was probably a term called, later than he, him. He coined the term cheap grace. Cheap grace, but never easy believism, I don't think. But cheap grace would be the equivalent. Don't you feel that that's what Peter is referencing in his epistle where he says that many people twist the words of Paul to pervert the grace of God? Amen. Is that how he's... As a license for sin. Is a license for sin. You know, even when we think about Jesus saying, many will say to me, Lord, Lord, he does not say, you who practice lawfulness, right. which is kind of the funny way that we're doing it. I mean, it's, it's like he says, you know, you will not enter because you were lawless. It means that you did your own will and desire. Amen. And instead we've turned that to you who were obedient. Right. You know, and, and listen how Bonhoeffer says it, because he's going to say the same thing, but with a little bit more punch, okay? He said, cheap grace is the idea that grace did it all for me, so I don't need to change anything. The believer who accepts the idea of cheap grace 
thinks he can continue to live like the rest of the world instead of following Christ in a radical way. The Christian lost in cheap grace thinks he can simply enjoy the consultations of his grace. Thus, the Christian should live the same way the world does. He says this is the conclusion. If you've accepted this cheap grace, you've got to live just like the world does. In all things, the Christian should go along with the world and not venture, like some 16th century enthusiasts did, to live a different life under grace than from under sin. So he says, you've got a serious task if you believe in this cheap grace. You've got to make sure you do things that enforce this doctrine. And what are those things that he's going to say you must do? Here you go. The Christian better not rage against grace or defile that glorious cheap grace by proclaiming a new, a servitude to the letter of the Bible and attempt to live an obedient life under the commandments of Jesus Christ. The world is justified by grace. Therefore, because this grace is so serious, because this irreplaceable grace should not be opposed, the Christian should live just like the rest of the world. Of course, a Christian would like to do something exceptional. I mean, love love is in the heart. It wants to do something quite outside the box. Undoubtedly, it must be the most difficult renunciation not to do so and to live like the world does. But the Christian has to do it, has to practice such self-denial so that there is no difference between Christian life and worldly life. I mean, he's really picking at it now, you know. He's saying you must take up your cross and follow Jesus by doing what? By by not ever expressing the love that's in your heart, by becoming obedient yeah. to the Lord. Because if you do that, you're boy, you're going to nullify grace here. And so he says the Christian has to let grace truly be grace enough so that the world does not lose faith in its cheap grace. And being worldly, however, in this necessary renunciation required for the sake of the world, no, for the sake of grace, the Christian can be comforted and secured in possession of that grace which takes care of everything by itself. So the Christian need not follow Christ, since the Christian is comforted by grace. That is cheap grace as justification of sin, but not justification of the contrite sinner who turns away from sin and repents. It is not forgiveness of sin which separates those who sin from sin. Cheap grace is that grace which we bestow on ourselves. God, Amen. Uh, just hearing that and, and, and feeling the, the conviction spoken from a man who gave his life after being persecuted by the Nazi regime and the, the church, the so-called church, that made itself complicit with the most heinous genocide in, in Western culture and Western history. I mean, it's like crisis is a magnifying glass for accurately perceiving theology. And the theology of cheap grace was put to the test during the Third, Third Reich, during the Holocaust. And this Christian cries out to us from a prison cell concerning the cost of discipleship. And he sees as his greatest enemy not merely an administration called Hitler or Nazism. He sees his greatest enemy as cheap grace. He sees this, this mechanism in the church at work to dilute its effectiveness against tyranny as cheap grace. We, we have to let a warning from, from a man who actually went through the martyrdom uh, known in the, in the New Testament. We have to let 
that warning resonate with greater weight coming from a prison cell than merely from a theological uh, postulation from some ivory tower? You know, so this is Dietrich Bonhoeffer, right? Yes. And, and I'll even use, you know, Zach uh, Herbert has a, a reputation for being a radical Christian, you know, and he's, and you, you can talk about, uh, you know, the Apostle Paul, and you can, you can point at these super Christians, you know, that have really found the secret and have given their entire lives and their whole lives. And, you know, you contrast that with the, with the Christian that made a profession of faith at one point and goes to church every Sunday and uh, goes to a Bible study every Wednesday night, but otherwise lives just like the world would live, working hard at the job, trying to you know get a raise and provide for the family and sell this house and move into the bigger house and you know do that whole thing that we do um you know and and i think it's easy to settle into that life and say i'm a christian that's being dutiful but i'm not a super christian i'm not so you know we we talked when we talked i think it was last week you know we were talking or a couple weeks ago we were talking about authority and i said are there any exemptions to to this authority are there any exemptions to this radical life in Christ? Are there any exemptions? Are, are there the super Christians and then the nominal Christians and then the, the church attenders and the, you know, sh- should we be seeing Christianity in these categories of, of, of people who are just, you know, made to kind of work and live the American dream but go and be faithful to church attendance? And then there's the other ones that are, are, are so serious that they go to seminary. And then there's other ones that are so serious that they lay down their life, quit their job, and go overseas and, and do missions. And should we be categorizing Christianity in such a way that there are Christians that, that, that you know, are called to the suburbs and just to kind of live their life and, and, and do what, you know, most Christians are doing? And then there are other Christians who are called to be radical and give all and everything. Should we be categorizing like this? Are there exemptions from the radical Christian life and laying down everything to follow Christ? Hmm. No. That's the shortest answer I've given in a while. <laughs> well, I mean, just the, 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 what you're basically saying, what people are saying when they make this claim or this question, they're creating categories and they're saying, well, there are super Christians who are excessive in their obedience and then there are ordinary Christians. And, and, and the super-Christians are, are to be commended, but not everyone is called to that lifestyle. Um, we, we hear this a lot. And, and generally, it's from people who are less hostile toward us. And they kind of look at us like, you know, you were called to be uh, in a convent, you know. And, and wow, we just really honor and respect the dedication that being a nun or a monk in a, con, in a, in a monastery or a convent would, would entail. But uh, that's just not what I was called to, you know. And then you look at scriptures like Jesus saying, whoever wishes to come after me, it's pretty, pretty inclusive, must take up his cross. And we don't see, we don't see that there is this class of people right. who is called to real sacrifice, but the rest of us, you know, we just have to get across the line of justification and cool our heels and we'll all be set. Paul's great indictment against the Corinthians in, in the uh, third chapter there, is he says, Since there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not fleshly? Are you not walking like mere men? For when one says, I am of Paul, and another says, I am of Apollos, are you not mere men? 
So his rebuke would be our excuse. Do you follow that? If Paul came to one of these churches and said, you guys are carnal, you guys are fleshly, they would turn to him and say, Paul, we're just mere men. That's their excuse. But that was his indictment. Paul felt that these were not allowed to just be mere men. They were supposed to be born again, regenerate sons of God, empowered by the Holy Spirit, laying their life down for Christ. And so the, the harshest thing he could say against them is, you're behaving like mere men. How dare you? It's the very thing we would throw back at God. Oh, I'm just a mere man. Well, if his spirit hasn't filled you, if you're still your own, if you haven't been bought with a price, if Christ isn't in you, then you're a mere man. But according to Paul, he assumed that we were all called to a completely different level. And when Jesus warns about false prophets, his, his point is be careful about false prophets. Be, be wary, be, be scared of, be alert toward false prophets who come to you in sheep's clothing, but inwardly are ravenous wolves. That is the context where he introduces the broad path. And, you know, historically, the, the elders of a city would sit in the gates and they would open the gates, the, the gates that blocked the path, so to speak. And that authority to open or close the gates, it was, it was indicative of their position of, of, of uh, oversight in the community. And so there is this subtle connotation when the Lord says, beware of false prophets, and then immediately starts talking about paths. He's, he's, he's tacitly saying that prophets open ways for people. Teaching opens a path for a people. And he says that the false prophets, his implication is that the ravenous wolves, the false prophets, open a path that is, uh, is, is, a, is chosen by the majority. And he says it is chosen because it is easy, it is broad, and many go in there at. That's why people choose it. This is, this is the appeal. It doesn't have to be narrow, restrictive, difficult, and it doesn't have to be such a small number of people who choose it. But he says one ends not in a suburban life followed by salvation, but one ends in destruction and the other ends in life. And, and easy, broad Christian living, Jesus categorized as destruction. Relationship with God is salvation. And if you do not forsake everything, your own ambitions, your vainglory, your position in society, your riches, if you don't forsake everything and take up your cross, you cannot be his disciple. That's what he said. That's not my opinion. That's what he said. And so easy Christian living is the doctrine of destruction peddled by wolves in sheep's clothing. False prophets tell God's people your Christianity can be done easier than that. True prophets say it is hard, it is narrow, and there are few. Why don't you come on? God can help you. His grace is sufficient. I've thought about a... Uh, you guys all got saved from the uh, 
from the comedy of pharmaceutical commercials because there hasn't been TVs in the community for a number of years. Um, but pharmaceutical commercials would oftentimes be advertising a new drug that was aimed to address some chronic issue, uh, disease, things like that. Most common, um, those commercials would be airing for diseases like uh, severe depression and things like that. And um, and so the you know as the the voice is talking to you about this drug, behind in the screen are like people like families jumping and dancing, you know, and just you know having this wonderful time together. You know, and it's, it, you know, the feeling it's preying on someone sitting there and they're in this terrible spot and they're looking and going, oh, if I could just have happiness like that, then my life would be so much better. And so this drug is talking about, you know, you take this pill, but, you know, by law, um, you know, when they, when they're first developing this drug, they give it to a lot of different people and, well, it fixes some things, but it kind of produces some other things that, you know, were unexpected, some law of unintended consequences. So they have to read at the end of these commercials, um, just so you know, um, taking this pill can cause the following types of symptoms, you know, and it starts out usually pretty light, you know, and it's going to be, you know, mild hair loss. You're like, oh, well, to be happy, I could go through that, you know, and, um, you know, blurred vision. Oh, well, I mean, as long as I was happy, I guess I could not see quite as clearly, you know, a limb might fall off. Oh, uh, I mean, a one-legged happy man's better than a depressed man. I guess I could go with that, you know, sudden death, you know, you're like, well, sudden death, mercy me. I mean, what, what do I have to pay to get the, you know, and, um, and anyways, um, you have this feeling that someone says, could I take that pill? What, what is it in that pill that causes those things? And You'd say, well, there's active ingredients inside of this pill that is going to cause these side effects when you take it. And you said, well, it sure would be nice if maybe we could remove those active ingredients and then I could take the pill. And you'd say, well, you could. And it would last for a little while by something that psychologists have observed known as a placebo effect, meaning that we could tell you that this pill is going to do all these things for you and just put sugar in the capsule rather than these active ingredients and it won't cause any of these terrible side effects. But you're going to believe that for about two or three weeks and then it'll be ineffective of actually producing the real change that you're looking for. And this is what false prophets have done more than any other thing is they have cooked up a gospel that says something opposite than what the Lord did. When he says, I am that door that the sheep must enter by in. And Paul in Romans 6 says what that is, is us being baptized into his death. They take that whole aspect of it and says that that type of repentance, that type of bedrock awareness that Jacob came to when he had to say, I am deceiver. I, I, I am manipulator and had to come to identification of who he is and wrestle with God to the point of absolute change and transformation. A new name, a limp to go with it, and a vision of following God that was going to be different than it ever was before. You know, that type of encounter with God, they say, is not necessary. And so people, they start having these side effects of coming to this voice that says, follow me. It's Jesus, but he's leading them to Calvary. And as they're going, they're starting to realize, oh, I didn't realize the side effects were going to be so strong. They didn't realize that the flesh was going to be so loud on its way to the cross, you know. And all of a sudden, a well-meaning man 
comes up with the word only only partially divided, not rightly divided or handled. And he puts his arm around the man on the way to Calvary and turns him from his course, saying to be a good shepherd, but he's a thief and a robber. A thief and a robber is someone who wants to ascertain or grab hold of something he's not willing to pay the full price for. And a thief and a robber will hop over the wall into the pasture of God, acting as though he has access to something he does not have. And he'll lead others into the same thing. And it's, it's, I think it's fitting that in John 10, when he talks about being the door and these thieves and robbers, that in Matthew 7, our same, our same Lord, when speaking in that passage, listen to what he says. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy that leads to destruction. And those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. So everyone find, would we be okay saying this is the equivalent of John 10 language? There's a narrow door that enters into the pasture of God. I am that narrow door. Would everyone feel that's okay? Listen to what he says next. Beware of false prophets. So same breath. I know Brother Ossie already referred to this, but listen. Who come to you in sheep's clothing but inwardly are ravenous wolves. John 10 is a sheep, sheep door metaphor. And he's saying there's a narrow door and it's me and you've got to enter in by me. You've got to be baptized into this same death. In Matthew 7, he's using the same type of language, slightly twisted here, to say there's a broad way that's being built for you by false prophets and it's not the way that leads to life. There's a narrow way and if you'll hear my voice, I'm taking you all the way there. I'll tell you, anyone that's telling someone that there's categories of Christians and they don't have to pay the full price is a false prophet and a liar, and they're, they're working against God and the building of His house. Amen. They are. Amen. Amen. Sorry, we're a little... This topic in particular is one that I, I feel the most for because I've seen so many people... I mean it. I've seen so many people who, as Randy was saying, had some type of eagerness to follow God. But as the Lord was leading them to Calvary, they got put into a slough of despond or some kind of a of muddy basin that they just slodged around in for years in doctrines that told them they didn't have to follow Jesus all the way to Calvary, lose their life and find the true life that was found in God. Amen? Amen. I just, I'm just looking at this, at, at what he just read before we go to this question, but... Um, you know, King James and New King James uh, render that Matthew seven fourteen. It says, "Enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is broad that leads to destruction, and there are many who enter through it. Many enter the broad way." King James and New King James say, "Because the gate is small, and the way is narrow, that leads to life." And there are few who find it. So he says the reason people, there's a cause, because the reason people choose the broad way is because they see the other way. And they don't like its narrowness. They don't like its smallness. They don't like how few go in it. And because we want to be in a large crowd and we want to be on a wide path and, and, and we want to... We want, we want to be with a lot of people, a lot of others just like us. We are unwilling to choose the right way. We choose the way that, that makes us feel more comfortable. 
can I I'll just add two passages quickly that, that come to my mind. They're familiar to us, but I, I just keep picturing the rich young ruler coming to Jesus and telling him all of the things that he had done, all of the things that he had given. And you don't see Jesus broadening that up and saying, great, no, that, that's wonderful. You see him narrowing that gate. And actually that was, the, it says Jesus looked on him and loved him. It was the love of God that looked at him, that discerned his heart and the things that he was holding on to, even if it was just one thing. And as Jesus told him, you just lack one thing. And, and he, he put something in front of him that was a test to see, will you, will you shed off these things so that you can go through this narrow gate? You feel the same thing in, in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus is, has set his face to go to Jerusalem and the Samaritan village just outright rejects him. And then how he wouldn't let him, and then, you know, the disciples were wanting to bring down fire on them. And then it, and then it says that these people came up to him and started saying, Lord, I'll follow you. you, you I always have the feeling that it's almost like they knew that that total rejection wasn't right. But there was still that wrestling. And, they'd say, and Jesus didn't, didn't say, oh, good, well, I'm glad you didn't reject me. Just good, come on along. Jesus turned around and said, he's spe speaking of a life of ease and the opposite of that, Jesus looked at him and said, the Son of Man doesn't have a, a place to lay his head. And then one after another, people start saying, Lord, I'll follow you first. Let me do this. And the, the response of Jesus is so dismissive. And you know that it's not because the things that they wanted to do weren't important, maybe, in the, in the big picture. They were wanting to put their own set of criteria. You know, they wanted to say, Lord, I like this, but that, that, it may be too much to do. Can I just do this first? And there was, there, again, the, the gate became narrow for them at that point of saying, you're not following me. If you're going to set the stipulations on what's important and what I need to do, I'm interested in that wholehearted trust that when I look into your eyes, you see my face set, that you say, Lord, I'll follow you wherever you go. I won't hold on to anything. And you just know that that, that was Jesus bringing that gate down. But you know in your heart that that's the way that leads to life. Amen. Amen. We don't have to walk away sad like the rich young ruler. Amen. Amen. We can go away with joy in our hearts, enduring the cross. Amen. 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 The difference between a, a, a blessing, a material blessing, and an idol is the priority we place on it. Amen. And there are many things which God gives for us to enjoy, but if we put them before Christ, if we put them before His will and His kingdom and His cross, then they are an idol, even though they may have been a blessing in, in the right configuration. Seek first the kingdom of God and His righteousness, and everything else will be added. Amen. Well, we've got one question and two comments. I, I figure we'll save the comments for the end. Um, I do feel a lot for this question. Uh, what advice for when one is so, in all caps, removed from their relationship with the Lord that prayer is foreign, not feeling worthy of God's love, and filled with such anger for turning their back. John says in his epistle that we must behold the Son of Man, that we must look on him. Isaiah speaks of the same thing when he says, they will look on him whom they have pierced. And it's, it's not uncommon for people to 
come to a place of frustration over the mistakes in their life, over the bad choices that they've made. But frustration is not repentance. Repentance shifts from hurt, from, from how self has been hurt, how self has been thwarted, how self has been cheated or robbed, and it, it begins to see with, with empathy how self has hurt, how self has robbed, how self has cheated and thwarted other people. And, and only, only a, an acknowledgement of the futility of trusting in ourselves, of choosing our own way, can represent a legitimate step into the humility that brings grace. And I think of my, my brother Simeon, who is a, a strong Christian now, helping others. And he left the Lord when he was 17 years old. And he joined the Marine Corps and did tours in Iraq and saw and experienced and did unspeakable things. And then he got out and with his, with the void in his soul, he began to fill it with drugs and became the slave and the, the plaything of, of, of the devil's devices. And despite valiant efforts to reform himself, he, he was unsuccessful. And he tells about, you know, ending up in a, in a mental, in a psych ward in a mental institution and being force-fed sugar pills to keep him alive. But he said that what was at work was a stubborn unwillingness to let God have his way. He wanted it on his terms. He wanted help, but on his terms. That's it. And, and he said he finally ended up in prison because of an unpaid, I forget what they call it, but an unpaid fine. He ended up in prison for nine months, I think it was. And it was like life had closed in on him over and over. It's just gotten smaller and smaller. But I need to tell you that God will not extort your obedience. In his kindness, he will let you see the end of human sovereignty, which is death. Human sovereignty expressed through human will and human choices is death. And he will, he will bring you into these moments where you see that, you feel that. But he will not extort your obedience. And when you give obedience grudgingly, it is of no value to God. That's legalism. Only when it is freely given from a place of trust is it meaningful. Simeon found himself in this prison cell and he was bitter, he was hurting, he was coming off of, of, of a long-term addiction, he hated himself, he probably despised himself by orders of magnitude worse than everyone in the world despised him. And, and he wanted to end his life 
and he kind of resolved that night that he was going to go ahead and end his life. And right before he was ready to to terminate his existence in the ultimate expression of cowardice and rebellion, the ultimate cop-out, really, he, he heard this voice say to him, don't you want to tell your dad that you were wrong and he was right? And he was seized with the simple truth of that statement. And, and so he took out a legal pad that they provided him in the prison, and he scrawled this almost illegible, unintelligible letter to my parents. And in that letter he said, I had to tell you that I was wrong and you were right. And what that was was, was the first crack in, in, the, in his will, in his iron will. He thought that he was unhappy because he hadn't gotten his way. But the truth was he was unhappy because he had gotten his way. He was unhappy because he was living as the God of his own existence. And that was ending in death repeatedly. And when he just made that little acknowledgement, you're right, I'm wrong. I was wrong. He thought it was like his last little comment before ending his life. Instead, that crack allowed grace to start flowing into his life. And I would just say to you, Self-pity. We, we've all been hurt. People will hurt us. People have hurt us. There's nobody in the world who hadn't been victimized on some level. But if you could just come to some level of acknowledgement and responsibility for your part. I don't know you. I don't know your story. But if you could just say, God, this didn't have to happen. I assume responsibility. This is the product of me choosing my way and my will. And I have never truly surrendered and trusted your goodness and your way and your will. And I just want to acknowledge that. Just that first step. And then to begin to let the Lord show you the full reality of, 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 of what the fruit of self is and what, where it leads, that it leads to death. I believe that in that brokenness, God would hear you and you would start to feel, just in that, in that acknowledgement, you would start to feel a softening of your heart. And as you do, you begin to cry out to the Lord. Not like, you know, Heavenly Father, I just thank you. you know, don't cry out to Him like you're calm, cool, and collected, but you just need a little icing on your cake. Go, go into your closet. And get on your knees and, and go to a place where nobody can hear you. And with all your voice and with all your soul, cry out to him, the King of kings and Lord Amen. of lords, Amen. like you can't survive without his grace. You know, the Bible says, the Bible says that if whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. But that word that is often translated in the Hebrew as call when it speaks of praying, it's the word litzok in Hebrew. And it means to cry with ear-splitting cries. Biblical prayer was not muttering something under your breath or piously saying flowing beautiful words. Biblical prayer was tearing your heart. He says, I want you to tear your heart and not your garment. I want you to humble yourself. James said, 
Lament and mourn. Let your laughter be turned into mourning and your joy to gloom. Humble yourself under the mighty hand of God and he will exalt you. Get on your face. Beg God. Say, Lord, I want to feel more. You, I have a heart of stone, but you said you would give me a heart of flesh. And don't pray like you're one king talking to another king, wondering if you could have some help. Pray like you're a helpless supplicant without hope without God in the world, apart from His grace coming to visit you. And, and, and put Him to the test. Say to Him with humility and, and pleading, Jesus, you said in the day I seek you with all my heart, I, I would find you. So I'm seeking you now with all of my heart. Hear my cry, O Lord. Attend unto my prayer. Don't process through here. Process through your heart. Process from your feelings. Come to him as a little child. A child doesn't come with rationalism and, and, and well-formulated thoughts and, and constructs. A child comes with an eruption of feeling. That's how the Lord wants you to go to him. And, and, and seek his face, call on his name. And, and I believe the Lord will answer you because I've never seen him fail. I hope this is answering the question on some level. But I just want to encourage you. The darkest hour means dawn is, is just in sight. Amen. And if you're in a place of helplessness, God is real. Call on Him like He's real. Call on Him like He cares. Test the Lord. Prove His love. Amen. He'll be there for you. Amen. I just can't stop thinking about Luke 14. And um, just based on what you, Brother Nathan, had ministered and even just this, this person's question and, um, you know, a certain, I'll, I'll just read it. A certain man gave a great supper and invited many and sent his servant at supper time to say to those who were invited, come for all things are now ready. But they all with one accord began to make excuses. The first said to him, I have bought a piece of ground and I must go and see it. I ask you to have me excused. Another said, I have bought five yoke of oxen, and I am going to test them. I ask you to have me excused. Still another said, I have married a wife, and therefore I cannot come. So that servant came and reported these things to his master. Then the master of the house, being angry, said to his servant, Go out quickly into the streets and lanes of the city, and bring in here the poor and the maimed and the lame and the blind. And the servant said, Master, it is done as you commanded. And still there is room. Then the master said to his servant, Go out into the highways and hedges and compel them to come in that my house may be filled. For I say to you that none of these men who were invited shall taste my supper. And I was just thinking about the fact that as the Lord beckons us, we, we must go. We must respond to the call. We mu there are so many things in life that are good things that are going to be clamoring for our attention um, and, 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 and we, want to, we want to lay those things down and say, Lord, I hear you. I hear your voice and I'm not going to reject it this time. I'm not going to turn away. I'm not going to pretend that this is some small voice that I can ignore and I've got more important things to do. I'm not going to do that this time. This time I'm going to hear your voice, God, and I'm coming to the supper. You know, I don't want to miss out on, on this opportunity to enter into whatever you would have for me, God, you know, because I have 
just been married or just bought some animals or just bought a piece of land or whatever it is. Amen. I just feel, you know, that there's, there's a response that we must have. And we can write off God's voice as some, some conscience or some feeling or whatever it is. But I think we know when we hear his voice and when we do, we must respond. Amen. So I wanted to add just one thing to what Brother Ossie was saying. And it's not so much as an addition, but as a sharpening of something that I think creeps itself into our prayer time and I'm always surprised at how I mean it's not that the Word of God doesn't say it but I just it continues to reveal itself that everything hinges upon belief and unbelief I mean it's really remarkable that that the scriptures would speak of this evil and unbelieving heart as what shapes everything but then this heart of faith and and an, it, it almost as though Faith is more talking about an attitude of the heart, even more so than it is anything else. You know, some type of view that it has of itself and towards God. And, you know, I say that because, you know, in Romans 1, Paul says that he's not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God unto salvation for the Jew first and also the Greek. And I, what I think modern man has done in a lot of ways is said, well, if he could have just anticipated, though, the type of issues that were going to be present in the modern man, he would have had a solution that was more powerful for the ailments that we face today. Because, you know, I don't know, salvation, I guess, you know, through the cross was powerful for those simple fishermen and things like that. But I've got complex issues, you know. I've got these depressions and frustrations, all this, and, you know, and again, it, man just continues to take this place. And so it goes into prayer, and whether it recognizes it or not, it has this indictment against God, Amen. an entitlement, a, a sense of, of why have you not held up your side of this? Have I not sought you with everything? Have I not been serious about this? You know, and, and even though it's not oftentimes willing to verbalize that, that is what's right underneath the surface. It is this sense that the fault lies with God and not with us. And I will just say that attitude is what's called that evil, unbelieving heart. You know, you think about Judas, you know, I don't know. It just seems as though he got so close to the end. I mean, he really did follow the Lord through quite a bit. You know, he went out when it was just by twos. He went out in this dependent type of relationship. I mean, there were a lot of different things that Judas Iscariot, he came along for the journey. But it also seemed he started to find fault with God yeah. as he went along in that journey. Yeah. And that fault he found with the Lord grew to a place in which he did not feel as though what was happening in following God was the way it was supposed to happen in his life. You know, I, I mean, you kind of get that sense from the text with, you know, we could have used this money. How, how much longer are we going to deal with this type of ministry? You know, I mean, he's not seizing Rome. He's not doing anything. I've heard people speculate. I don't know what I feel about this, but I have heard people speculate that Judas was actually going to force the issue of Christ coming in, in a full reign of, of smashing Rome and exalting the Jewish nation. He was going to force the issue by betraying him to the to the uh, Sanhedrin. And if he did that and they came and arrested him, then he would have to take off the gloves and, and really smite everything. I'm not saying that, that that's for sure at all, but just hear me out. There's something that Judas did that he got right up to the cross, but then he despised the way that God would take him. And he explained God in a different way and he let resentment form and then he rejected the purposes of God and one out of the 12 
did not get to go through Calvary and then see the baptism on the other side. You know, that Jesus said, I have a baptism to give and oh, that it was kindled, you know. I mean, he just missed it. He was right there, you know, but he was rejecting the purposes of God. And what I'm saying is, is that even the person that sent that text, I just feel, what if you just switch it around and say, God, the fault's not with you, it's with me. And based upon your faithfulness, I have reason to believe that you've been narrowing my life in a lot of different ways. You've been putting people into my life and words into my life that would have already solved the, the problem that I'm in. But I have not been willing to take your solutions. I've not been willing to look at the things you're trying to speak, the things you're trying to do in order to bring a light to this. And God, I'm changing my tone and attitude. Lord, my attitude is going to be, I know this is the power to save me and all of my problems. I know this is the power to raise me to a newness of life. Whatever I am doing that stands in the way of experiencing what you intended, what you drew up before you formed the world, is something that we would all participate in. Whatever I am doing that is a hindrance to that, would you slay it and reveal it to me? Lord, I want it to be known. I know the fault is on my side. And I just think there's something about changing and making that shift that will help also answer the question that came to us there. So, amen. I feel the Lord's Spirit. I feel His grace, even in what you were just saying. Amen. And, and those who come to God must believe that He is and that He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. We've got to come on His terms, not ours. If He's God, we can't put demands. That would make us God if He complied. But He is God. Brother Zach, you, you sparked this. But, you know, when you were talking about Judas, I believe there's... It, there's, it always gets me, there's one or two of the gospel accounts of that and where it says that Judas went out to betray Jesus. It was right, right at that point where the woman was breaking the alabaster jar at Jesus' feet or box. And it's, it's like others have shared this even before. You, you get the feeling that it, the, why the next verse says, and Judas then went out to betray him. It was like something in Judas saw what was going on. He had his own comments about what, what could have be, been done with it, the, uh, you know, that alabaster box. And yet Jesus said, no, she's anointing me for my burial. You know, it was like something inside of him went, he's really serious. He's really going to do this. All these things that he's been saying about, I'm going to lay down my life. He's really going to do it, you know. And that's, and then it was like, I, I, I got to get away from this, you know. I feel such a different spirit coming up inside of me. It's like while you were, while you were sharing, I just thought what, a, what an incredible freedom it is to take those things, to recognize who we are just like that woman did, to come in, to take everything, even the most precious things that we have, and to just break them at the feet of Jesus. You know, that's the thing that Jesus said. This was going to be a memorial that was going to be talked about. We're still talking about it today. Amen. Wherever the gospel is preached, I'll tell you, I feel such a sense today. That question that was being asked, God, what a privilege, privilege it is to push aside all the social niceties and all of the ways that you think you're supposed to act and walk, to, walk right in and just say, Lord, I'm laying all of this down at your feet. I'm breaking it at your feet right now.